Julian Lin, welcome back to Investing Experts. It's great to have you on the show again. Thanks for having me, Rena. It's always great to have you on. You run a group called, an investing group called Best of Breed Growth Stocks, as many may already know on Seeking Alpha. And uh, you talk about a, a number of different sectors over there. But today, I, I think that we should focus on tech stocks and, and what's going on over there. But before we kind of get focused on, on tech in, in specifically, I'm curious what you are looking at in the markets in general and what your feelings are generally about the markets these days as we as we head into the last month of the year. And I think for much of the last several years, I've been very focused on tech stocks, um, especially after um, the big crash in 2022 valuations were very compelling. You know, even if even as Washu was very pessimistic, um, so so we've had a nice run this year. But I think now that valuations are becoming more full, definitely less compelling than just 12 months ago. Um, I'm starting to slowly shift my focus to some more, maybe you could say conventional value names. Uh, for example, I've written publicly about some of some big holdings like Enterprise Products Partners, that's a pipeline company, as well as uh, Cannabis Real Estate Investment Trust, New A Capital Partners. Um, just starting to find some opportunities within some dividend stocks as well. Although I still remain overall bullish on the tech sector um, overall. Can you, without getting too deep into it, I'm just curious where or kind of how do you look for the dividend stocks that you're focused on or how are you seeking out outside um, risk reward plays outside of tech? Given the higher interest rate environment, almost every single dividend stock or at least high yield stock has become more high yield or cheaper. I think investors need to be careful um, comparing the current valuations with you know just five years ago because the higher interest rate environment does change a lot of things. Uh, for example, a lot of a lot of names, which maybe their leverage would have been acceptable, you know, three years ago with no interest rate, with very little interest rates, uh, now find themselves with too much leverage. Uh, one, one such name is like Next Era Energy Partners. Uh, that that's a name which was one of the biggest winners, you know, in a zero interest rate environment, but has seen the stock get crushed, you know, as growth has evaporated due to the higher interest rate environment. Um, just kind of from a mathematical perspective, a lot of these dividend stocks have a lot of debt, which means every year they have to refinance maturing debt. And if interest rates now are a lot higher than before, it could mean that they're gonna pay a lot more interest costs You know, when they uh, issue new debt to, mature, to refinance the maturing debt. So that could really eat into the growth rates moving forward. We're seeing a lot of, for example, in the REIT sector, a lot of REITs are showing far lower growth rates than before. I mean, to be fair, they typically grow at like a 3%, 6% rate before interest rates rose, but now a lot of them are showing no growth or even negative growth solely because of increasing interest costs. So when I'm looking for investments in the dividend space, I'm, I'm mainly focused on names which, one, they have very strong balance sheets, which could only have been possible if they were conservatively managed prior to interest rates having gone up. For example, the name I just noted was Enterprise Products Partners. 
that company always has among the lowest leverage metrics in the pipeline sector. Uh, but it's also curious that even now with interest rates higher, a lot of these firms, uh, not just to call out some names, but for example, like energy transfer in the pipeline space is still trying to pursue higher leverage ratios. They're not really saying they want to reduce leverage, which to me raises some eyebrows given that interest rates are higher. But not only that, there's a lot of names which seem to be chasing yield. Uh, Realty income is a very popular name among dividend investors, but I think some of their capital allocation decisions this year um, have made me more of a skeptic than a believer. And it's not too hard to do that given that the stock's not even that, it's not even that cheap anymore at just a 6%. I think it's under a 6% yield at this point. Um, I, I don't really think it's appropriate to continue investing, that is um, acquiring new properties at the same cap rates as before interest rates were rising. But that's kind of what's happening at Realty Income. So when I'm just kind of returning back, when I'm looking for investments in the dividend space, I'm focused both on the balance sheet valuation as well as the capital allocation policies there. And when you question the policies like that, is that enough reason to let go of an investment or it usually goes hand in hand with maybe another red flag? I would say it would be enough, but that's mainly just due to valuation. A lot of these dividend names, they're they're cheaper, but they're not like that cheap. For example, and let's return back to realty income. Realty income right now is yielding around, I think it's like 5.7%. Or just under six percent. Um, if for, for, for the, this name's not going to really grow very fast, just by the nature of its business model, especially with interest rates so high, um, you know, growth might hover around two percent. You know, if we're optimistic, three percent if they acquire a lot of properties. So, assuming no multiple expansion, these names they they may not really deliver eight percent to nine percent returns. They might actually underperform their from the broader market. In order for these names to beat the broader market, you're really assuming quite a bit of multiple expansion. But if their capital allocation policies are subpar, it's, it's, it becomes harder to make the case for multiple expansion. You might actually start making the case for the opposite. So just based, I guess to answer your question, just based on valuation, it would be a problem if the capital allocation is not optimal, just given where you know things are trading at today. It's interesting. Michael Guyad was also on a, a few days ago uh, talking about how he sees dividend investments as um, the near term future, let's say, whereas some people thought that maybe we would be getting away from those. But based on where we are, you know, in terms of the market cycle, in terms of interest rates, that it makes a lot of sense now. So uh, appreciate you letting me pick your brain on that a little bit. Um, something else that we've talked about more a few months ago, but also leading up into, let's say, NVIDIA earnings is a a lot of the tech names and what's happening in the tech sector, this AI mania that we've seen perhaps come and go, um, or perhaps we're still in the midst of it. What are your thoughts on the tech sector and and what we've seen and where we're at? With tech tech stocks being up by a wide margin this year, uh, I'm seeing a lot of investors starting to call it another bubble saying it's just the tech bubble all over again. Uh, but I think there's, an, so there's some important nuances here and, and it goes beyond the fact that tech stocks are not at all time highs. I mean, obviously Microsoft is still up, is making new highs, but that the typical tech stock is still 
down a lot since their their all time highs, but the big differences between now and before, uh, just besides the recovery, would be uh, two points. Uh, one is profitability, and the second one is the valuation reset. And I and in terms of profitability, we've seen a lot of these companies deliver rather dramatic transitions uh, in margins. That might be something like going from non-gap profitability to gap profitability. We've seen that with Palantir. Uh, Palantir just has done four, you know, four consecutive quarters of gap profitability, which gives them uh, the ability to be included in the S&P index and even CrowdStrike. Uh, even though I, I know, I know the management team there is kind of trying to downplay expectations for them to sustain gap profitability, but they've somehow managed gap profitability by accident. They haven't even been trying to do that. And there's all those other names that, you know, go from unprofitable to becoming non-gap profitable. And also some names that were profitable before, but are showing big margin expansion. Uh, Salesforce comes to mind for that last point. Uh, Salesforce, for example, was previously guiding for, I think, 25% non-gap operating margins in like 2027, but they're, they're guiding for like 30% margins this year now. So they've, they've, a lot of these names have accelerated their plans for operating leverage in the current environment. And that's, that it's already impressive for them to deliver such big margin increases, but it comes even as the macro environment was very weak. And that's an important detail. Um, that you know these tech companies are able to not only sustain resilient revenue growth but also deliver huge huge margin expansion in spite of a tough macro environment this this is a detail that should not be overlooked by investors the other point would be valuation jamin ball um of automator capital has posted some weekly updates on valuation i'll just reference his his models uh, his latest update showed that the average tech stocks trading around five and a half time sales. And that's, that's actually not so, not so crazy, right? So you got, you got some names like CrowdStrike at the high end trading at around 13 times next year's earnings. And then around in the middle of the middle of the pack, you got Salesforce trading at five and a half next year's earning next year's sales and 24 times next year's earnings. Valuations have even after a recovery have definitely reset to more reasonable expectations. And so when valuations are no longer trading at the crazy, you know, pandemic level levels, it starts to become acceptable for these names to deliver slower top line revenue growth. And again, this is also alongside the fact that they've all delivered really strong improvements in profitability. And so perhaps during the tech crash, investors would have possessed a great deal of skepticism in tech stocks, thinking that, oh, they're not going to ever become profitable. Those fears have been in general, in my opinion, addressed given that a lot of these names again were able to deliver such strong improvements in margins in spite of a tough macro environment i I think that even after a big recovery you know the valuations are still very compelling or not compelling at least i don't view them um, as being bubbly i view them as still being quite viable in general just given the strong fundamentals and the more attractive valuations do you think there is something to pay attention to for investors in terms of the downside uh, in that sector or on certain names? I think definitely there are certain names that have run up too much. I think, you know, there there's some parallels to the 
the pandemic bubble, right? There's still some names like Affirm or some other names that are kind of soaring, um, just kind of like in a meme stock association. But I think for the average tech stock, I think that the signs are pointing more toward upwards than downwards. Um, I, I know that if you're just focusing on the stock price, there, there, there might be reason for concern. But again, just based on funda- the fundamentals, a lot of these names have been delivering resilient results in spite of a tough macro environment. But I expect the macro environment to improve at some point, at which point we might see some upside surprises at a lot of these names. Um, just just to indicate why, I mean, during a tough macro environment and doing economic uncertainty, a lot of companies, they may not be um, adding to their headcount. They might, they, and a lot of these techniques even underwent very large layoffs. And that will impact revenue growth at enterprise tech companies, which are often based on uh, number of heads at a company. So in an improving macro environment, hiring picks up and that, that could help accelerate even uh, top line growth. So I think in spite of the fact that tech stocks are performing so strongly, there's more, I, I'm a stronger believer in upside catalyst than downward. Tech tends to be a very high margin business. And so they don't have that offsetting factor from price. And it actually goes the other way in that um, the high margins, the high unit level margins only they keep increasing due to lower cloud, uh, due, sorry, due to increasing scale for the cloud operations, which in turn leads to operating leverage. Tech is one of the stronger secular growth stories, you know, in the market. There was there there was a reason why tech stocks became a bubble, you know, during the pandemic, even if, you know, the actual valuations were not justified. Right. And what would you say... Um... Well, I'm going to ask you kind of what what are your favorite uh, stocks in the sector at this point, especially we've come off earnings for some of them. Um, I wanted to start with Palantir. It's a stock you covered. It's a stock you just mentioned. Victor Durganov uh, was on a few months ago talking about Palantir, how it can go as low as $7 and he's still going to be buying it because it's going to go high and he's long-term extremely bullish on that stock. I'm curious uh, how you would um, articulate your bullishness on that stock in particular, and then if you'd care to articulate your thoughts on your uh, the other kind of main stocks that you're bullish on. Yeah, Palantir is a very controversial stock, very, very popular among growth investors. I think, I think with Palantir, um, for much of its life, it, it seems like a lot of investors in Palantir seem to care very little about the valuation, which may add to some of its notoriety over more conventional value investors. But the way I view Palantir is that it is an implementer for, you know, artificial intelligence and uh, deployments. It's always been in this kind of space. And so this rise in generative AI has only helped increase, you know, the demand for Palantir services. And I, I, as I detailed in a past article, public article on Palantir, I believe that they will eventually have what I call an NVIDIA moment, meaning at just there, there will be a moment where the company shows in the fundamental results that the demand has arrived, you know, that customers are coming and they're trying to very aggressively deploy more generative AI applications. But the interesting point with Palantir is that, it, that none of this has arrived yet. Um, so there's some impatience there. But even though 
revenue growth has been slowing, they have still been able to deliver incredible improvements in profitability. I, I still remember when it IPO'd uh, just several years ago, uh, a big bearish point was that it wasn't really profitable, right? The company has always been generating high free cash flow margins. Uh, so it was very low financial insolvency risk, but a lot of that cash flow was due to the fact that equity compensation was so high. And that, that's another topic <laughs> investors like. But now that Palantir is profitable on a gap basis, you no longer could make that argument anymore, right? So even inclusive of any equity-based compensation, they're still generating real gap operating profits. And their gap net income is even higher than gap operating profits because they have a large net cash position and no debt. So they've, they now have a bulletproof balance sheet, very strong cash flow structure. Uh, but what's left is mainly just the valuation does not make a whole lot of sense if my thesis on, you know, an acceleration revenue growth does not happen. So yeah, it, it remains a controversial stock, perhaps even more controversial now that the stock is performing so strongly um, as of late. Um, but I think that I, I think that there are legitimate reasons to be optimistic, you know, for that name. And you don't think that there's the proof is in the pudding at this point, you think there's still further to go? Yes, absolutely. I think, well, they obviously deserve credit for making that transition to gap profitability. But I mean, I, I, at my core, I still care deeply about valuation. If revenue growth is, continues trending downwards and gets to like 12%, 10%, 9%, the, value, the current valuation does not quite make sense. Um, just that, that, that it doesn't, it, it would be a little bit too rich. Um, the current valuation is clearly pricing in, I mean, assuming, assuming the smart money's in this, is clearly pricing in an acceleration to the 20%, 25% level um, at some point over the next coming quarters. I think, per, I guess I guess one thing I could say is Palantir investors, they, they might want to be concerned if growth is not accelerating meaningfully over the next, you know, one, two quarters. Um, that, might, that, that, that might be a red flag that growth might never reaccelerate based on this generative AI thesis. In which case, you think that it would be time to get out of the stock? Yeah, and at, at that point, I would definitely need to adjust my bullishness for the stock, just given, especially if the stock is still trading, you know, anywhere close to where it's currently trading today. Mm -hmm. um, any any uh, thoughts on your other tech favorites? Yes, I think that it might be difficult to name you know a compelling small medium cap name just given that valuations are just so much more rich you know relative to 12 months ago 12 months ago you could have just thrown a dart at a board and you could have come up with a pretty attractive thesis for almost any name you know uh but now, now right now you know I, I think overall the tech sector will perform strongly but the average tech stock and they're kind of more fairly valued I think my top picks in the tech sector are still going to be some of those mega cap names. I like both Meta Platforms and Alphabet uh, for similar but also different reasons. Uh, it's it's interesting that Meta Platforms is now trading at a premium to Alphabet, uh, whereas it typically had traded at a discount. Um, a lot of that is due to the fact that Meta Platforms has been executed very, executing very strongly. Uh, they delivered an incredible year of efficiency uh, this year, 
for example, their their uh, family of apps profit margins is over fifty percent, which is which is quite stunning. Obviously, their overall margins is being pulled back due to their ongoing investments in the metaverse. But even then, their profit margin is still very high overall. And Meta Platforms has shown that they are a huge artificial intelligence beneficiary. As you know, as a customer of their own artificial intelligence, they they have been able to overcome the competition threats from TikTok, overcome the data privacy changes from iOS, largely due to AI. And I I personally use a lot of their products, uh, Facebook and Instagram. I have noticed um, how they have been able to recommend posts that I don't follow. That's and that's all AI. That's it's quite incredible how strongly they've executed at Meta Platforms. And the stock is still trading at compelling valuations, um, especially if you back out on the Reality Labs losses, you know, just to try to get a better sense of what you're paying for that Instagram and Facebook. On the other hand, Alphabet, Alphabet's trading a bit lower, just largely due to the perception that it is losing market share in search, you know, with Bing having that chat GPT first mover advantage um, and Google's uh, BARD maybe being still subpar uh, at this point. Um, but so there, there's a couple of things with Google. One, obviously valuation. Uh, this this is a name that's trading qu- very quite cheaply. Um, and that's even before accounting for its large other bets losses. Um, but I think people are underestimating the, the high moats um, at Google. But more importantly, what I don't see being talked about much is the fact that Google has not done the same aggressive cost cutting seen at something like Meta Platforms or other tech names. If I recall, they only laid off around 3% of the workforce, which relative to maybe the 30% layoffs at Meta Platforms indicates that if Google were, you know, were inclined, you know, they could always have that lever up their sleeves. To even to make to further increase their earnings, and then the stock will be even more cheap. So I think that there are some, in spite of the perhaps relative bearishness on the name due to the competitive threats on Bing and the ongoing lawsuits, you know, the DOJ and its um, payments to Apple. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to like Alphabet over the next over a five year time horizon. And speaking of kind of uh, what there is to like and the fact that there's been press about it. Um, any thoughts about Microsoft and the brouhaha over the CEO position, you know, changing and then changing again? Yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting to see, uh, to see to see this kind of drama unfold so quickly. All of this drama and opinion AI doesn't really affect it at all. Um, it, it mainly affects maybe its investment and OpenAI, basically, all of that drama mainly affects OpenAI investors. Um, sure, Microsoft has quite a bit of money invested in OpenAI. Um, you know, around I think they put in around eleven billion. Those were thirteen billion or so just a couple months ago. Um, and OpenAI has been trying to come, trying to issue new shares at a much higher valuation. I think the latest report was around ninety billion. So that would imply that Microsoft stakes is worth a maximum of around. 40 billion maybe right based on that multiplier um but even even at 40 billion that's not very much given that microsoft trades at nearly a three trillion dollar 
valuation. And in terms of how I'm viewing that partnership, I think Microsoft's main benefits from OpenAI is simply integrating OpenAI's capabilities into, you know, their existing products like Microsoft Word, you know, they have their co-pilot. That's the kind of stuff that isn't really being impacted by who's on top. You know, this is just integrating functionality. So I don't, I don't see any of the drama at OpenAI. I mean, it's been pretty much resolved, but I don't see that drama impacting Microsoft at all. Um, it's, it's mainly related to their equity investment. And any thoughts in terms of what might not go or what, what they may not continue to do right at Google and at Meta Platforms? For Meta Platforms, at this point, um, they're firing on all cylinders, but the main, the main potential issues might be one, uh, the company might invest too heavily in reality labs uh, without much return. Um, that, that's definitely an important risk that might be rising just given that the, comp the stock has been performing so well, ironically, their profit margins are increasing at the family of apps. Perhaps management might see those two as justifying increasing the aggressiveness in their metaverse investments. Um, and at Alphabet, the main, the main possible issues might be if they're unable to um, prove that search is um, a business with high moats and high barriers to entry. If it turns out that search is just a commodity and, you know, let's say Apple removes Google as a default search provider and Apple users are very okay with either being or maybe a future unreleased Apple search product, then that would be a big problem at Alphabet, largely out of their control. Um, what is going to happen at the DOJ and what happens with Apple? Um, I was going to ask if you were a betting man, how would you bet? But, you know, could be just one of those crystal ball questions. I, I've always had the hunch that Apple is developing their own search product. I think at some point um, they are going to be, they are not going to be the default search engine for Apple. You know, they're going to maybe save on some fees, but they're going to have to seat some market share. I, I think it's inevitable. I mean, it just, it just never made, it never really made sense why Apple would not own search. You know, they, they try to earn everything else of their product, but they don't own search. I, I think at some point that will happen. I think that there's enough levers for margin expansion at Google. There's a lot, there's, it's a very big market in terms of the long tail end secular growth opportunity. The, the current valuation is quite attractive that even as the Apple threat un, happens over the next, you know, 10 years, you know, I, I think the stock still is quite compelling, attractively valued. And, and I know that this Apple thread is not even really the focus of Wall Street at this point. Right. And in terms of, you know, Meta's focus on Meta, the metaverse and, and, and uh, you know, the whole VR world, do you think that's a Zucker, something that Zuckerberg is personally focused on to his detriment? Or do you think there's something there? It just has to be done smartly and perhaps conservatively. I think that there's definitely potential in the metaverse and those um, and pursuing something like that. I mean, just the way I view it is imagine if we're able to, you know, look at 20 years later, look at some baby videos and you could have a more immersive experience, almost like reliving what it was like to play with your baby. That that's, that's invaluable. That would be incredible. But I think that, 
this might be a case where maybe technology is not quite there yet, but they're trying to, even though technology is not quite there yet, they're trying to address that issue by solving, by, by uh, throwing as much money as possible into it. It's possible that this will have great societal societal implications, but the ROI and the financial part of it just wouldn't make sense over the long term. So a lot of a lot of the things with meta with meta platforms is having to having to be okay with the stock in spite of the large losses at Reality Labs, while also hoping that at some point, you know, that those Reality Labs losses will either, you know, um become zero or, you know, at some point they start selling and becoming a profit. Um just at some point in the long future. What are your thoughts on NVIDIA just because it's such a kind of oft mentioned name when we're talking about tech and AI and especially when we're talking about AI mania and whether or not there's a bubble. That's definitely the stock that people point to. So I'm just curious your thoughts there. Yes, NVIDIA. Yeah, this is a good one. So I think um, I was previously a big skeptic. Um, <laughs> it was very embarrassing. I was a skeptic of NVIDIA before, you know, this big generative AI moment. Then after the stock went up a lot because of generative AI, I was a bigger skeptic. I doubled down. But as I noted in my last uh, publicly uh, published article on NVIDIA, I, I was clearly wrong. Um, so some, what's happening at NVIDIA is quite interesting. Sure, the valuation has soared incredibly, but I'm viewing this moment as being very similar to what happened when Apple overtook Black, BlackBerry. And BlackBerry, you know, private, previously to Apple releasing the iPhone, BlackBerry was the dominant smartphone provider. Obviously, that's not quite the same with NVIDIA and AMD. They were kind of more of a duopoly. But with BlackBerry, after the iPhone came out, you know, BlackBerry just could not compete. They were just on a different competitive playing field to, to the iPhone and to Apple. So I'm viewing that to be the case with NVIDIA. I think this is explaining why NVIDIA is trading at such high valuations, mainly because now it is being viewed as having this kind of barriers to entry similar to Apple. Right. You, you find Apple trading at around, you know, that 28x earnings in spite of, you know, very, very modest growth. That is because of the perception of having such a high quality business. At NVIDIA, a lot of those barriers come from the fact that um, in order to power and fully optimize these chips, you know, to to get the best performance, you have to program them and and pro programming, you know, every every company uses their own language. So the fact that NVIDIA has been doing these GPUs, um, their language is called CUDA, but the fact that they've been doing this forever means that they have the largest developer community um, coding and working on their chips, you know, in the world. And so they, they have this advantage. Everyone knows they have this first mover advantage in generative AI. But the idea is that the longer this advantage persists, the greater the switching costs increase, right? You get all these companies, they're all coding for NVIDIA generated AI chips. And the, the more this happens, it's not like they're going to just switch to an AMD chip because they could save a few bucks because it's going to, it's going to have big implications for, um, they have to retrain, for example, all their developers. The developers have to suddenly switch to coding in AMD's language instead of NVIDIA's. It's a very, very big um, switching cost. So the fact that NVIDIA has a first mover advantage right now, that's 
it's actually not just that. It's actually long-term, they're having these network effects. They're having these switching cost effects. NVIDIA has developed, I guess I guess we put it, NVIDIA is in the right place at the right time. Generative AI is exactly what was needed for NVIDIA stock to perform strongly. It's given them, it's basically made it possible for the stock to command a very high earnings multiple that is not affected by, uh, you know, the previously perception of cyclicality. So I think that maybe, and right now I'm not buying NVIDIA just because I tend to prefer stocks with, you know, a higher ROI. But I think that um, over the long term, it should be performing, you know, very quite solid returns, possibly even, you know, in line with the market. I think that it would be a mistake to think that NVIDIA is just a pure AI bubble at this point. And would there be a price that you got in on it at? So I think just given how much it has run up, you know, the valuation, the fair valuation range is very wide and it's definitely trading near the high end of the range. So it's still viable, still going to do positive returns, but the chances of it beating the market are not so high right now. I, I think it would need to drop a lot. <laughs> it would have to drop a lot before I would get interested, but that would not happen unless maybe the thesis breaks down. And if that were to happen, maybe I wouldn't be interested anymore. So it, it's very unlikely, I think, at this point that I would be able to buy into this NVIDIA stock story. And do you think, you know, you mentioned that we've talked about the big cap names when it comes to AI, because those are the names worth looking at. Are there any non, uh, you know, mega cap names that you feel like are worth looking at or peeking at in the sector? So in AI, I would say that's harder just because um, due to the huge tech recovery, a lot of the smaller names seem to be getting some meme-like bumps um, in valuation. Uh, but I think there's, I think for investors looking for value in tech, there, there are still a lot of interesting picks. Uh, a, lo a lot of these names, because of the valuation reset, net cash on their balance sheet is making a larger percentage of their market cap. That wasn't really something that came to play, you know, during the pandemic bubble. But just, for example, a name, a very, a name that's been out of favor for quite a long time is that uh, discount brokerage Robinhood. Uh, this is a name where net cash still makes up around 50, 55% of the market cap. And the company is profitable as most nearly profitable on a gap basis, largely because, you know, it's earning a lot of interest income, you know, on, on their cash balance. I, I view their acquisition of the X1 credit card as being potentially transformative. I, I think a big issue facing Robinhood was main, it was not really the product related because they, they arguably have one of the better UIs and not the best experiences among any platform today, but it's more just perception due to you know, their, some of their failures and missteps during the GameStop bubble. But I think if there's one thing that could change perceptions, it's, uh, it's free money. I think that their X1 credit card, um, my, they have not made any announcements, but my assumption, um, just as some background, currently the X1 credit card is a metal credit card, which is, I, I don't know how many listeners really like credit cards. I like credit cards. Um, the metal credit cards are always quite popular. And then it, the way it offers quite lucrative rewards um, based on selective merchants, you could get 3% or so 
um, based on selected merchants. My assumption is that Robinhood is probably going to offer some very aggressive uh, cashback rewards for using the credit card, especially if you're subscribed to the Robinhood Gold, their membership, and you have a lot of investments at Robinhood. This, I, I, I am of the view that something like this, some promotional activity like this would be very efficient in attracting new assets to come to the company. And, and I'm also of the view that, you know, offering cash back, you know, like some 4% return on the credit cards, probably it's actually not very expensive relative to the amount of money, you know, that they will be generating on the assets being brought to the platform. But I, I think, you know, there are still some maybe, I hesitate to say deep value opportunities, but there are some value opportunities still available in the tech sector. You know, you got some protection from the net cash. And then there's also the idea that there could be some acceleration and growth either to, due to a improving macro environment or maybe some execution, things like, you know, what we just talked about with Robinhood. Yeah. Um, appreciate it, Julian. Appreciate another great conversation. Uh, happy for you to share with investors any final thoughts that you may have on the market or on this specific sector or on uh, what what subscribers can get from best of breed best of breed growth stocks uh, happy happy for you to have the last word here but appreciate the conversation sure yeah I think um, I guess some important takeaways would definitely be to not just view you know tech stock as being in a bubble I think there's a lot more nuances to it definitely need to keep in mind that the profitability profiles is dramatically different now than just two, just one, two years ago. I think that valuations are also much more reasonable. So at the very least, I find it dangerous. It, it would be very dangerous to be shorting the, mark, the tech sector overall. Um, and if any listeners are interested in you know more of my overall portfolio, which tends to be more growth oriented, but not necessarily tech oriented, yeah, as, as, as you mentioned, I, I do run a investing group on Seeking Alpha called Best of Breed Growth Stocks. You get access to the Best of Breed Growth Stocks portfolio, as well as the universe, which is a watch list of all of the names that I follow. Yeah. Otherwise, I am also available on Seeking Alpha. Awesome. Appreciate it, Julian. And uh, I would say nuance is the word of the quarter, if not the year, if not the decade. Here's to more nuance in our analysis and, and uh, research. Any articles discussed today, you can find links to them on our show notes. And all episodes have transcripts available on Seeking Alpha. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app. And we'll see you soon with a new episode.